The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in chapter 5 and in verse 44. Verse 44 in chapter 5 of the Gospel according to St. John. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from the only God? Now, those who attend here regularly will know that we are continuing a series of studies in this fifth chapter of this Gospel according to St. John. And that here, in this final section which we are now looking at, our Lord and Saviour is dealing with one of the most important and vital subjects that can ever engage the attention of men and women in this world. Here he is, the Son of God standing before a group of people that don't believe in him. They don't believe what he says about himself. They don't believe him in spite of the miracle that they've just seen him performing. They don't believe him in spite of all the massive evidence that he adduces on behalf of his own claims. He has told them directly, plainly, explicitly that he is the Son of God, and he has pointed them, as I say, to evidence, both from the Old Testament and from the contemporary situation, to establish and to substantiate his claim. But still, they do not believe. As he has put it to them, he will not come unto me. You don't want to come unto me, that you may receive life. And then he goes on to explain to them and to tell them why it is they are in that position. Now he doesn't do this to condemn them. He has already told them that he's continuing in his speech to them for one reason only. He says, these things I say that you might be saved. That's his only reason. If he hadn't been animated by that reason, he would have stopped long before. Because they refuse him, they reject all he's got to say, they're impervious to all his arguments. And yet he goes on. And he goes on because it is his desire that they might be saved. Thus we see his wonderful love and compassion and patience and long-suffering manifesting themselves in the mere fact that he continues to address them at all. And what he's doing is, I say, to make an analysis of their condition clearly with the object and the design, that they should see what an appalling state they were in. And then having seen it, that they might forsake it and believe on him. Now, here in this verse that we are looking at tonight, he comes, I think we may safely say, to the crux of the whole matter. There is a sense in which this is the end of his argument. And what he really says from this point onwards is more or less an indication that he has abandoned them as hopeless. And he just then goes on to tell them that do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. They will be accused. 
If they don't believe, then they will be condemned. But he isn't going to do that. However, here I say, in this verse, the 44th, he, I believe, brings us to the very end of his argument with them concerning this most momentous question. The question of believing in him. Now that, I say, is the greatest question confronting mankind at this very moment. Let me put it, as I'm very fond of putting it, in this way. Here is the situation. We all know something about the state of the world. We can all see it. We are hearing about it on the wireless. We see it in the newspapers. The whole situation is desperate. I'm not only thinking of the international situation. I'm thinking of the problems of society in this country. Report after report comes out telling us about this moral declension, how things are going from bad to worse. Now then, there is the position. Here, on the other hand, is a message, a gospel, that offers and promises to deliver us from all that. And yet, the world won't listen to it. It won't believe it. It won't believe this message. And it persists as it is. Now then, what we are really considering is our Lord's explanation, his own explanation, as to why the world is like that. Now, as we shall see, the explanation he gives is a very different thing from that which these Jews to whom he was speaking thought was the explanation. They thought, as we've already seen, that the explanation was that they, with their great ability and understanding and discrimination, were able to see exactly who he was, that he was an imposter, that he was just a carpenter from Nazareth setting himself up as a messiah, but that they couldn't be taken in by that sort of thing. They thought he wanted to receive honor from men, so he told them, I receive not honor from men. No, the explanation is a very, very different one from that which they expected, very different from that which mankind still expects to hear. Very well, let's look at it together. What has our Lord got to say here? Well, let me put it to you in the form of a number of principles or propositions. Here's the first. He first of all reminds them of what it is that makes us Christians. How can you believe, he said? Believe in what? Well, believe in him. That's what he's been calling upon them to do. How can you believe in me, he said, while this thing is true of you? Very well, he's thereby saying, isn't he, that what really makes us Christians is to believe in him. What saves a man is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he means by believing. Believing in him. What does that mean? Well, he's been already saying. He says, uh, I am come to you in my Father's name, and uh, you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, uh, him you will receive. So that to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ means to receive him in this way. That uh, we believe what he says about himself. 
that we believe him when he says he is the only begotten Son of God, that we accept his testimony and receive it when he says, uh, No man hath ascended unto heaven, but the Son of Man who is come down from heaven. Even the Son of Man which is in heaven. That we believe him when he says, I and the Father are one. That we, listening to his speech about himself, going through the evidence of the four Gospels, we believe him and receive him when he says that he is God, the eternal Son incarnate in the flesh in this world. We believe that. That's receiving him. Now then I say this is a part of being a Christian. That you believe this message concerning the incarnation of the Son of God. That we believe, as John puts it at the beginning of this gospel, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. That nearly 2,000 years ago this staggering, astounding thing took place that God came out of heaven in the person of the Son and entered into this world and into time. Receive him. Receive him as the one he is, Son of God. But not only that, he says, you will not come unto me. What does this mean? Well, it means this, that having realized that he is the Son of God, that we go to him and cast ourselves at his feet and ask him to receive us. Why? Well, because we believe that he came into the world in order to save us. That we believe him when he says, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That we believe him when he says, God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life that we come unto him believing that he saves us by dying for our sins. That's what he himself has explained is the meaning of this word believe. How can you believe, he says? Believing in him makes us Christian. And that is what is meant by believing. That we believe that he is the Son of God and that he came into the world to die for us men and our sins upon that cross on Calvary's hill that he received the punishment that we deserve, that he died our death, was buried in our grave, and rose again for our justification. That is what believing in him means. And you see, there are only two possible attitudes with respect to that. We either believe it or we don't. We either say, yes, this is the thing we were waiting for, or else we reject it. Now, there's no other conceivable position. It's either belief or rejection. Belief or unbelief. Now, what our Lord deals with here is this most important and vital and momentous thing. Why is it that men and women don't believe that? Why don't they believe in him? Well, he puts it like this, and it's my second principle this evening. What makes us Christian, I say, in the first place, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Secondly, what is it that makes such a belief impossible? Because that's what he's dealing with here. How can you believe, he says? Now, that's just a rhetorical question, which is really uh, making a statement. It's a very good way of making a statement sometimes. Instead of making the statement, one asks a question. When he says, how can you believe what he's really saying is this, while you're in that condition, you cannot believe. It's impossible. Very well, then, there is something, there is an attitude, there is a condition of the soul which makes belief impossible. This is the most terrible thought. While you remain like that, he says, you cannot believe. It's impossible. Well, now, what is it that makes belief impossible? That's the question. I wonder what the result would be if I put that question to you at this moment and we discussed it together. Am I speaking to somebody who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? What's your reason for not believing in him? Is it this reason that he gives here? I venture the prophecy that it isn't. I venture to suggest that what I should be told is something like this. I don't believe in you, O Lord Jesus Christ, as somebody because of my brain, my mind, my intellect. I suppose that's the commonest answer that's given. Men and women believe that they reject Christ because of their ability, because of their intellect. I don't want to waste time on this this evening, but my dear friend, I can prove to you very simply that that's never the explanation. And I do it like this. If that is the answer, well then, you would never have an intelligent person who is a Christian. It would follow automatically. If it is merely a question of brain, power and capacity in an intellectual sense. It would just mean that no intelligent intellectual person has ever been or ever can be a Christian. But that just isn't true. Another proof, if you want it, is this. How do you explain that the same man with the same intellect and the same brain at one stage in his life rejects and then receives and believes? Same intellect. You see, the thing is childish, isn't it? It just is nonsense. There's no other word to use about it. It is not a question of intellect. The record of the church is enough to answer that lie once and forever. That's the lie of the devil. He makes people think that it's because they're such great intellectualists that they're not Christians. And yet, you see, history shows us very plainly that some of the greatest minds and thinkers the world has ever known have been great and notable Christians. Doesn't that? Then another, of course, and a very popular one today is modern knowledge. Ah, they say, conceivably, you're right when you say that in the past some of the great minds have been Christians, but then they didn't know what we know now. They didn't have all our scientific learning and knowledge. Well, once more, it seems to me there's a very simple answer. That argument comes to this, that any man who possesses this supposed scientific knowledge cannot be a Christian. And the simple fact is that there are many such men who are Christians. 
There is no scientific knowledge that makes the slightest difference to these matters. It has nothing to do with it. That is not the explanation. Then there are others who say, ah, what uh, prevents a man from being a Christian is that he is living an evil life. An evil life is a very bad thing, but you know that isn't the thing that prevents men from believing. That isn't what our Lord says here. Thank God that isn't true. The great record of the church is a record of men who are living vile, foul, evil lives. But who, having heard the gospel, have been renewed and regenerated, have been lifted up from their sin, and have become saints adorning the life of the Christian church. No, no. Those are not the explanations, and I could give you many others that are put forward, and they'd all be equally wrong. Well, what is the explanation? Well, here, says our Lord, how can you believe which receive honor one of another? That's the explanation. That is the thing that makes belief in the Lord Jesus Christ impossible. This honoring of one another, this seeking of honor from one another, according to the Lord himself, that is the one big thing that stands between men and women and the believing of the gospel. Now he has told them already that they don't want to come to him and that they haven't got the love of God in their heart, that they'll believe any imposter that comes along but never believe God's prophets. But why do they do that? Well, here is the answer. The trouble with them is that they're animated by this one desire to receive honor one of another. What does he mean by this? Well, honor means praise. Honor means glory. And then when he uses the word receive, it carries this meaning. To receive honor means to seek honor, to desire honor, to seize upon honor, to live for it, to have it as your life's ambition. So we are confronted by this staggering statement that according to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one big reason why a man does not believe in Christ is just that that he lives to have honor from other people and to pay similar honor to them. Isn't this rather surprising and amazing? Nothing to do with intellect, you see. Nothing to do with scientific knowledge. It has everything to do with a state of the soul, a state of the heart. It's men's personality. It's what's become of men as a result of sin. Now then, has not this been the real history of mankind ever since the fall? What was the cause of the original sin? Wasn't it to have a position? Wasn't it to have honor? Wasn't that the form in which the devil presented it? He said, if you dis disobey this command and eat that fruit, you shall be as gods. Now then, rise to it. You'll be gods and you'll be worshipped. It was ambition that really led to the fall. The desire to be honored and to have honor and to be in a wonderful and great position. And that has been the story of the human race 
ever since. I was on the verge of saying that never has this been more evident than today. But it's always been evident. I suppose there is a sense in which it is more evident today, and I would have been right for this reason, that our agencies of publicity have been multiplied much more today than they've ever been before. The thing has always been there. But it really does stare us in the face much more than ever before because of these media by which this thing can be practiced and carried out. And I ask again, is it not evident and obvious that the whole of life is carried on today upon this very basis? The vast majority of people in this country are not Christians. Only 10% even claim to be Christian. And of those, only half that number practice Christianity at all regularly. Five percent only. What about the ninety-five? Why are they not Christian? Well, says our Lord, it's because they live to receive honor one of another. And isn't it the simple truth? Well, let me show it to you. They talk about their great brains and intellects, but this is the explanation. It is something that is seen in all classes, in all realms. It is something that you see in social life. It is something that you see in intellectual circles. It is something you see in political circles. It is something you see in every single profession or calling or whatever you may like to call it. Alas, honesty compels me to say this. It is even to be seen in the church of God. It's as universal as that. Receiving honor of one another. Look at the whole life as it's organized. Look at the energy that's put into this. Look at the time. Look at the money. And all to keep this going. Receiving honor one of another. How does it show itself? How does it manifest itself? Well, the best summary of it is that which is found in the second chapter of John's first epistle. It's what he calls the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. Now, my contention is, and I'm just repeating our Lord's words, I'm just expounding it, this is the spirit that is controlling mankind today. And this is the thing, the thing, that stands between people and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me therefore analyze it and show it to you as it really manifests itself. What is this? Shakespeare calls it seeking the bubble reputation. That's his philosophy of life. He traces the whole history of men. Now, what does men do in this world? Well, he says, the whole time in different shapes and forms, he's seeking the bubble reputation. When he's a young man and a military man, he seeks it even at the cannon's mouth. He's so keen on reputation that he'll even lose his life. Seeking the bubble. The iridescent bubble. Reputation. That's the thing that is governing the whole life of society. All your supposed intellectuals, all the people who boast of this knowledge and that, 
This is the thing that governed them. Reputation. The desire to be important. The desire to be seen. The desire to be known. Look at the trouble people go to. To get an introduction to important people. Why? What's the reason? Simply in order that they may be able to tell everybody that they've met them. That makes them important. Receiving honor one of another. Being important, counting, being wonderful. Praising one another. Don't you see it everywhere in the journals, in the papers, even in books, how they write to one another and for one another. Now, I'm not giving my own opinion simply. I remember reading a most instructive and illuminating leading article in the Times Literary Supplement in which the men worked out this thesis that what had gone wrong with literature was just this, that all these people now, he said, instead of writing for the public, are writing for one another. The critics write their books for one another. The man writing the book knows that certain others are going to criticize. He remembers that he writes for them. He doesn't write for his public. And they know they're going to criticize one another. So they're always preparing for this. It's simply determined, you see, by this desire for reputation. That's only one illustration. But it doesn't last stop at praising one another. Self-praise is involved. Self-advertising. I'm amazed how people can be so fond of looking at their own photographs and having them plastered all over the place. Self-advertising. Dropping a hint here and there, making things known. Don't you see it in the gossip columns of the papers? And in the judicious paragraphs that are placed in here and there? There's nothing so sad as to watch it going on. Receiving honor one of another. Craving to be popular. Craving to be well-liked. Don't misunderstand me. No man should be boorish. No man should covet or desire to be unpopular. But it's a very different thing from the craving to be popular. And to be liked and to be praised of all men. And then a morbid concern about the opinions of others. What will people think? What will people say? Now, I'm preaching the gospel this evening. And I know this, that many a man and many a woman has hesitated about this great salvation. Simply for that reason, they felt the power of God and the message. And then the devil suddenly insinuates into their mind, what will they say at home? What their husbands say? What their wives say? What their children say? What their parents say? What will people think? What will people say? Seeking honor one of another. Regarding that as the most important thing in life, so belief becomes impossible. And then the fear, the dread that grips, it seems to me, so many people today. The fear of adverse criticism. Or the fear of not being considered quite up to standard in certain respects. But says a man to me, if I believe that gospel, I'm no longer an intellectualist. The really great people, they don't believe it. The philosophers don't. 
Listen to them on their brains first. They none of them mention God. They don't. They don't believe. If I believe your gospel, am I not making a fool of myself? I'm not. Am I not joining the ranks of the ignoramuses? The fear of losing intellectual respectability. The fear of being lacking in scholarship. Oh, I could dilate on all these subjects. I've had the miserable experience of watching the decline and fall of men, some of them who have entered the Christian ministry, who started in simplicity believing the truth and knowing it and experiencing its power. And then they go and have some training and they begin to get these fears, intellectual fears. Will I not be regarded in these circles as a fool if I still believe the Bible? Will I not be regarded as lacking in scholarship? And they begin to trim and to accommodate and the wretched process goes on. It's been going on in general for a hundred years. It's all you see a manifestation of receiving honor one of another. Wanting the praise of men for my great brain, my great intellect, my scientific knowledge, my culture, my scholarship. And the horror and the dread and the fear that if I give up all this and believe the gospel, I'll lose caste as it were. And I'll be regarded as amongst the fools. And then the fear of offending. The fear of saying something that isn't popular. You know, many a prophet of God has ended his life as a popular preacher. What a tragedy. What a decline. That a man who went out with a prophetic message should end as a popular preacher, an entertainer, a man who's never made anybody feel uncomfortable, who's afraid of offending, and trims and accommodates his truth, lest he become unpopular. Fear of offending. What a sorry, what a sad business it is. But that was the kind of thing our Lord had in his mind. He knew these Pharisees, these Jews so well. They were proud of their learning, proud of their scholarship, proud of their ability to quote the great teachers of the past and to marshal the arguments and to show their knowledge of the minutiae and the details. And he knew that it was this wretched pride of knowledge and intellect and understanding that was blinding them to the truth about him. How can you believe, he says, that go on receiving honor one of another? It's impossible. And you know, my friends, it's as impossible tonight as it was then. Because there are people who hear the gospel and they know that if they believe it, they'll be ostracized from certain circles in which they've turned. They'll be smiled at. When they enter the society, people will just look at one another significantly. And it hurts them so much that they don't believe in Christ in order to have that. The moment we live for that kind of thing, belief in Christ, Becomes impossible. Didn't he put it quite plainly in these words? He said, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Woe unto you. Did you notice what he said there in the Sermon on the Mount in that fifth chapter, which we read at the beginning? He said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, you come to me, that's what they'll do to you, but you'll be wonderfully blessed. But you see, a man who puts that sort of thing first, 
He cannot believe in Christ. Because you can't believe in Christ without paying this cost, this price. The world is against him. And therefore it means this inevitable division. Indeed he went so far as to say, if any man love father or mother, or husband or wife or children, more than me, he is not worthy of me. He doesn't really belong to me. Well now then, that leaves us, doesn't it, with this great question. Why is it that that kind of thing makes belief impossible? It isn't I who is saying this. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself who said it. As long, he says, as you live for that, paying compliments to one another, receiving honor of one another, you cannot believe in me. Why does it make it so impossible? Well, I can sum up the answer by putting it like this. All that I've been describing to you is the exact opposite, the complete antithesis to everything that our Lord says in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Who is the man who is blessed of God, who is truly blessed? Do you notice the thing he puts first? Poor in spirit. That's the exact opposite of the man of the world who lives for the good opinion of others. Because if you're poor of spirit, you will not be admired, you'll not be praised. Ha, ah, they say, he used to be a good fellow, but look at him now. Poor in spirit. What next? Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. You don't get very far in this world if you're meek, do you? You succeed in this world if you advertise yourself and give the impression that you're a wonderful fellow. You're taken at your own evaluation. If you make a great claim, people will believe it. Any man who likes to stand up as we saw last Sunday night and to say, I'm a great teacher, I am a great this or that, he'll get a great crowd to go after him. People take us at our own evaluation. Now, says Christ, blessed are the meek. And the poor in spirit and those who mourn. And those who realize they're so rotten that they hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. And on and on he goes. Well now you see this seeking honor one of another is a direct denial and contradiction of the very foundation of the Christian life. There our Lord lays them down in the Beatitudes. That is Christianity. Here, he says, are the marks of the people who really belong to me and who are children of God. There they are. Look at them. And I say you can never find anything that is such a complete contrast to the thing by which the world lives, which is receiving honor one of another. But let me analyze it. It's so terribly important. This receiving honor one of another makes belief impossible for these reasons. One. It puts self at the center and not God. The man who lives or the woman who lives to receive honor from other people and to give this honor to the, to the other people is living a life that is entirely centered upon self. 
That's the one big motive. That I should be liked, that I should be praised, that I should put a figure, that I should be big and great, and everything revolves round about me. Do you know, my friend, we needn't go any further. If that's your way of living, you cannot believe. You can't be a Christian and be like that at the same time. They are mutual incompatibilities. But that is the first truth about all people who receive honor one of another. The second thing about this kind of life that makes belief impossible is that it obviously puts human opinion into the supreme position and as the final standard of judgment. I don't think anybody can dispute that. You see, the canons of judgment that are applied, as I've said, is this. Here is somebody preaching the gospel. And the reply that's given is, really nice people don't believe that sort of thing. Now, I'm quoting a statement when I say that. I remember the case of a woman who'd always been nominally religious and very punctilious and faithful in her attendance upon her church. And then suddenly a little baby that she'd had died. And that was the means of her awakening and coming to seek help and listen to the gospel. And God in infinite pity and grace and compassion dealt with her, revealed the truth to her, and by his spirit gave her the new birth and she became a new woman. And her doctor, who had been attending her, was amazed and astounded that he could see the change in the woman. He no longer was needed. His medicine was no longer needed. The woman was all right now. And he began to inquire as to how this had happened. And she told him how it had happened, and this was his comment. He said he was surprised that a man like Dr. Lloyd-Jones could preach such a doctrine about being born again. He was disappointed in him, surprised at him. That sort of thing perhaps is all right for mission halls, but rarely, but rarely, you know, it isn't quite the thing. That's how it works, you see. Human opinion. But surely it is stated nobody, surely nobody today who is really intelligent still believes that. Uh, surely no man who has any knowledge or culture. He, he, the thing is impossible. Nobody does now. And there it is, you see. And because they say things like that and the fear of not being there, as I say, human opinion is elevated to the very zenith. It's the final arbiter of all truth. It delivers its final pronouncement upon everything that claims to be the truth of God. And if you elevate human opinion into the supreme position, you'll never be a Christian. Look here, says Paul to the Corinthians, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many noble are called. You see it, don't you? But he says, thank God, it didn't count with you. If any man willeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be made wise. 
We, the apostles, he says, are counted as the offscourings of the world. But it doesn't matter. Now our Lord is simply saying this, Isaac, that a man who puts human opinion into the supreme position and who counters every statement and every claim and all the evidence of history by saying, yes, but so-and-so doesn't believe it. And look at his great brain and look at his knowledge of philosophy. He's doomed. He cannot believe. And what makes the thing so monstrous is this. That every age says the same thing. And you see, the present age ridicules the opinions of a hundred years ago. And a hundred years ago, they ridiculed the opinions of a hundred years before. They say, of course, they didn't know. They were all right as far as they went, but we know. And then you see, people in a hundred years' time will be saying exactly the same about these today. And yet this is put up into the supreme position with a doctrine of relativity and of movement and of evolution. Nevertheless, man's opinion is put into the supreme position. It's sure lunacy. But what makes it so tragic and important is that it makes belief in Christ and in this saving truth an utter impossibility. I say to you therefore this evening that if you are going to put up human standards and human opinions, I don't expect you to believe this. I know you won't. They're all against it. They've always been against it. It was they who crucified Christ and didn't recognize the Son of God when he stood bodily in front of them. It's fatal because its standard is inadequate. Then another reason why this kind of thing makes belief impossible is this. That this life which lives on and consists of receiving honor one of another is such an external attitude towards life. And knows nothing and cares less about the state of the inner man and of the heart. Is there anything more superficial than this life that lives to give and to receive honor one of another? Oh, you know all about it. We've all been in it in some measure or to some extent. The superficiality of it all. Oh, let me quote our blessed Lord's words again. He said on one occasion something like this. You, he said to the Pharisees, are they which justify themselves before men. But God seeth the heart. For that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. What do men know about us? These men who praise us and who flatter us and who give honor to us. What do they know about us? They simply see the outside. Do they know the heart, the inner man? If men and women in society, and when I say society, I mean the whole of life apart from Christ. If men and women simply knew the truth about one another as they are inside, in the citadel of the soul, in the inner man, society collapsed. This is not only a superficial life, it's a dishonest life. It's a life of appearances. 
We want to be thought highly of, therefore we put on our airs and graces. We put on a false affability. We seem so pleasant. We've never had an unkind thought about anybody. And there, while we're smiling, there may be hatred and malice and venom and bitterness in the heart. But you see, as David reminded us in that 51st Psalm that we have read at the beginning, Thou desirest truth in the inward part. If I were dealing but with men, says David, I could dissemble. I could dissemble as well as they do. I've done it. I could stand up to them. I could put on my camouflage and all would be well. I could cover up my tracks. I could cover up my sin. And David would be a fine fellow, though he's an adulterer and a murderer. But thou, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. God judges not by external appearance. God is a dishonor of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There is nothing hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And this life of compliments and of praise and of honor, it's all on the surface. It's all external. And the heart isn't revealed. It's dishonest. It's superficial. It's sham. It's a fraud. But while men are living a life of sham and of fraud, how can they believe in him who is the truth, who is the light and who is God himself? You see, it isn't surprising that he should say, How can you believe while you're playing with life and playing with yourself? While you're putting on the mask and living a life that's essentially fraudulent? How can you believe in one who has the eyes, the blazing eyes of God and who comes from that sea of glass that reveals everything? It's impossible. And finally, this kind of life makes belief in Christ impossible. Because God hates it. And it cannot live in his presence. Let me quote you again. Luke sixteen sixteen. Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, and it can be done so easily. But God seeth the heart, and that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. There are men who stand out on the pages of history. Great men, captains of armies, mighty statesmen, imperial rulers. And the whole world did its obeisance to them. And they strode the world like some kind of a colossus. Great men receiving honor from the whole world and the adulation of the populace. Great men, says the world. We know something about the personal lives of some of them by now. And there's no question about it, they're abomination in the sight of God. 
He hates it. He will have nothing to do with it. He drives it from his presence. He cannot abide it. I think I've told you before how the men pointed out the very significant thing that we read in the book of Daniel. There you find references to the men that the world calls Alexander the Great. Do you remember what Daniel calls him? A he-goat. That's the biblical view of the world's great man. The men, I believe, who died of an aneurysm of his aorta, which is caused by syphilis, that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. Know ye not, says James, that the friendship of the world is enmity against God. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. God hates them. And he'll have nothing to do with them. And the man cannot be adopted into his family while he lives for such things. The sham, the pretense, the show, the tinsel, the external, the make-belief. God being a God of truth and of justice. God being light in whom is no darkness at all. Can have nothing to do with it. I hadn't intended spending my time this evening simply on this first point. But I verily believe, if I may say it humbly, that the Spirit of God has led me out into this awful analysis. We'll have to go on with this theme next Sunday, God willing, and perchance the Sunday after. But let me make this one point this evening before I let you go. What is the governing principle of your life? What is it that's supreme in your estimate? Are you and your life being governed by what people think and say? Are you being ruled by what the majority thinks? Have you forgotten what I quoted last Sunday night? The truth is ever on the scaffold and wrong forever on the throne. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be that go in thereat. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Is your life determined, your view of Christ decided, by the opinions of men whose breath is in their nostrils and will soon be dead and all their opinions will be dismissed by future generations. Are you risking your eternity on that? In the name of God, I beseech you, consider what the Son of God said. 
while your life and your outlook are governed by this desire to be thought well of by men. You'll never know him whom to know is life eternal. And while you receive the flattery and the praise of men, you'll never know what it is to enjoy the smile of God. My dear friend, have your eyes been opened to see the unutterable folly of living this superficial, dishonest, external life of praise amongst men? God grant that they may have. And if they have, I know what's going to happen. You are going to turn to this Christ whom hitherto you have rejected. And you are going to ask him if he'll still receive you. You'll ask him, do you take fools? Do you take men who've been deluded? Do you take men who can have been such lunatics? Here I am, I come to thee just as I am. The question is not, will I now receive thee? But wilt thou receive me, such a fool? Go to him, and I promise you, I tell you in his blessed name, he won't refuse you. However long from mercy, you may have turned away. Turn to him now. And he will receive you. And you'll begin to know something of the honor that comes from the only God.